Hello, and welcome to Weed and Grub. Now you. Now you. I'm here for you to use as a sounding board. Nice. To say more. I'm here for you to get all of your ideas out. Well, then no one's going to enjoy this podcast. (laughs) It's just two people going, now you. (laughs) I was raised to serve others and never think of myself. How about you, Mary Jane? I was raised to encourage men to speak their mind and spill their stories and keep mine private. Like a lady. <laughs> so between the two of us, we want everyone else to talk, and then we keep going, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now you. <laughs> oh, no. Podcasting is not for us, if that's the case. No. And I definitely don't keep my stories to myself like a lady at all. I don't even think that's like a lady, right? It's just... Right. That shouldn't be the qualifier. No, that. isn't that so funny? It's like that outdated way of thinking of like, you know, women should be sort of like demure and quiet and just encourage men to talk about themselves. And that just feels like, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely, I was raised in that environment to not in my home, but societally, I feel like that, you know, when I was growing up, that was definitely like key to being, um, seen as like a nice, a nice young woman was, you know, not, you don't talk about yourself too much and you just encourage men to share how they want to talk about their day or whatever. Well, then you tell me, where do you want to steer our intro for this interview with Noel? Um, I was going to talk about cottage cheese. (laughs) I'm here for this. Let's go. Real quick. What up, Mary Jane? How's it going, Mike? So good. Welcome to Weed and Grub, everybody. This is a podcast about comedy. Cannabis. Cooking. Culture. Calling shit out. And and cottage cheese. Let's go. Let's do it. I am all about cottage cheese. Does that make me weird? I wish it wasn't what it is because it's better than it is. It is so fucking good. And I don't, I mean, I think it's like, it's weird. It's gross. The texture's strange. It's for old ladies. You know, it's for nursing homes with chunks of pineapple in it, maybe. But I fucking love it. Every day. Yeah. One time I had a, what are those called? Like a dull pineapple can? Yep. And I had a tub of cottage, like a quart, uh-huh. and I'm just looking in my right hand, looking in my left hand, dump them together, mix them up, and that's like three episodes of TV for me. Hell yeah. It's been, so I bought some recently, hadn't had it in a while. I, you know, finished it in a couple of days, have been marveling at how much I fucking love like salty cottage cheese with a cup of coffee in the morning. It sets my day on a great path. Um, but I feel like cottage cheese gets a bad rap. Well, so you're making me think two things. Uh-huh. One is it's always on like a menu as a side that nobody orders. Because, no. you know, like the hierarchy would go probably fries, coleslaw, fruit salad, mm-hmm. cottage cheese. Yeah. Or no, no, I'm sorry. Fries, coleslaw, side salad, uh-huh. fruit salad, cottage cheese. Yeah. It's a bottom, it's a bottom bitch on, it's a the, bottom on the sides. Bitch. Yeah. yeah. Big mistake. Nobody's ordering. I mean, who orders cottage cheese in a restaurant? With a hamburger? Right. Mm, yeah, no. that's no. But you know, I, uh, okay, well also what's your curd size? Cause I was shopping for this cottage cheese and I was like, oh right, there's small and then there's the fat curds mm-hmm. and then I, there's the low fat and the full fat versions. What's your, what's your ideal cottage situation? I think I approach all pr- 
pulp products the same. Mm-hmm. I like a medium pulp OJ. I like a medium curd cottage cheese. I think I'm a medium man. Okay. Through and through. Curd. I like the big fat ones. <laughs> <laughs> I like big fat curds. I like super pulpy juice. Like if tapioca get it, get its act together, those pearls would be enormous. I like the boba tea with the big fat pearls. I really do. I yeah. do. Yeah, I like the way they swim around in your mouth, you know? It's fun. I feel that. Yeah. It's hard for me to not make a joke about... (laughs) Me liking the big fat ones? Yeah. (laughs) Do you even need to make it? (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Cool. Um, (laughs) Well, but here's the other thing I was going to say about cottage cheese, which is, to me, absurd. Like, ricotta gets all this shine because of its creamy saltiness, and it's deservedly a delicious cheese, Mm -hmm. but... If I'm going to genuinely choose between a cottage and a ricotta, mm-hmm. I think I like cottage more. Right. Well, it's very, I mean, do they even have cottage cheese outside of America? I feel like it's such a specifically American thing. Oh, that'd be, I'd be curious to never look up, but suppose about. Right. Right. I was, th- you're making me think too. I was just watching uh, a great British bake off has been getting me through these days, these crazy times. And, uh, cause it's so fucking calming. And there was a, a cannelloni. What are they called? Not cannelloni, cannoli mm-hmm. challenge. <laughs> a cannoli challenge. And um, she used mascarpone instead of ricotta. And everyone was all like fucking super wigged out about it. It was just like, I don't know, like little cheese dramas have just been keeping me alive. I like a cheese drama. A cheese drama is a fucking good, yeah, it's good. Wait, if we're going to do hierarchies, let's do cheese. Soft cheese hierarchies? Like, let's do a soft cheese hierarchy. And I'd also want to know where you fall in the cheddar spectrum. Oh, Okay. So, uh, cheese, soft cheese, uh, ranking for me would be cottage and then, um, ricotta and well, well what are we talking about? Like spreadables? Cause then there's a cream in there. Can I give you just four? Yeah. Give me four. Okay. Brie. Yeah. Mott's. Okay. Ricotte. Yep. Cottage. Okay. Is the matzo barat? Oh, no, it's not. Oh, is the matzo? No, you know what? I shouldn't have do. I shouldn't do a brie. I should do a barat because those are all those like almost plain but not plain flavors. So it's matzo barat, ricotte, cot? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I would go cot, barat, ricotte, matzo. That's awesome. That would be my ranking. Okay. How about you? Let me get my head straight. I would probably go barat, <laughs> cot, <laughs> ricotte, mats. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if we said the same thing or not. I have no idea. I feel like we're scatting though. Like ricotte, mats, barat, cot, <laughs> mats, ricotte, barat. <laughs> Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we got that straight. Yeah. And what about on the cheddar spectrum from hard and sharp to like mellow and yellow? Uh, super hard, super sharp. The sharpest you can get. Like the sharpest, oldest English cheddar. Fucking love it. Mm, you just made me swallow. Couldn't agree more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just made you swallow. Oh, yeah. Like my, my throat just like thought about it. Oh, your saliva glands pinged your throat and said, get some cheddar in here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, do you want to get to the news real quick before? Oh, yeah. Today's Grubbly Gazette. Yeah. There's a new president. We good? That's it. (laughs) (laughs) 
thank fucking God. Truly. And our guest is tied into that news. So we'll, we'll get to Noel in, in a few minutes, but it was a fucking really interesting conversation to have. And just what a crazy time to know that we are on the other side of those four years as of today, as of when this drops, that there will be a new administration and um, some light on the horizon, hopefully for some bad things to go away and for some good things to happen. Well said. I just keep picturing dust settling Mm. and the fact that like the dust is still there. It can get swept up at any time by the wind, but I would love for the dust to just like take a break. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You don't need to swirl all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it could be even hosed away. How about that? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I'm all about that. See what's underneath. So anyway, a bad, bad example of what's going on in the world to compare it to dust, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's just, it's hard to talk about any of it without getting super bent out of shape and um, serious. And so maybe that's not what we're doing today. And maybe we're just celebrating the fact that there's, you know, good to come and, you know, yeah, let's. Let's keep it at that, I guess. Okay. Well, then, can we go back to cheese for a second? (laughs) Sure. Because something I've noticed recently is provolone being the secret dark horse that is probably more beloved than almost anything else. I never think of it, and every time I see it, I'm going to get it. Interesting. I don't think I like provolone. I think I'm anti-provolone. What? The melt on the thing with mm. the move? Yep. I don't. I think it's kind of just like a bland, rubbery slice that gets in the way. Am I crazy? Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Whoa. I've stepped on some provolone dreams here. <laughs> Your face. I can't believe our first and last podcast oh, is no. going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm all, if, I, if I'm a, if, like you're talking a sandwich slice. Yeah. I uh, would always go with like Swiss or Emmental if I can get it. Emmental, what is that? It's I think akin to Swiss, sort okay. of in the same family. It's got that little bit of a funk. Yeah, you know, you do love the funks, even when it comes to like good weed. Mm-hmm. You're a, you're a funky girl. I do like the funk. I like that mercine. I like that skunk, and I like the funk in my cheese. Dang. Yeah. So I'm a medium pulp boy, which probably means like, what kind of strain would you compare? Me too. Limonene, probably. Yeah. You know, you, li- you like your limonene and your pinene strains, and you like your gassy strain. I mean, you like, you're a sour diesel guy. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It, how funny that it doesn't matter what segment of humanity we're talking about. Like, we are who we are, and we like what we like. I saw a TikTok the other day. It was very interesting because it was a beautiful fashion model wearing something that n- most people would think they couldn't pull off. It was like a tight shirt, um, high pants. You can tell I don't know anything about clothes. <laughs> you know, something crazy like a tight shirt and high pants. <laughs> Fucking the worst. <laughs> Sorry. And like like bold sailing shoes. Okay. And he was like, you might think you, I've been getting DMs saying I could never pull that off. But what you can do with this look is think about what you're comfortable in and trans- transition the boldness of this into something like a sleek, tight khaki a mm-hmm. converse shoe mm-hmm. and so you can still pull off the same fit but at a different degree that you are comfortable with so it's not about this exact outfit it's about something that fits your mold within this realm because it's still speaking to you yeah i love that and you're making me think about you know how cool it was to go and see alden who's that awesome stylist 
Um, great follow on Insta too. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember his handle right now. I think it's cool and casual studios. Yeah. He just changed it. Yeah. Um, but Alden blew my mind because I'd never, I'd never gone to a stylist before. And our friend Eric linked me with, um, Alden and he, um, uses all natural fabrics and he put me in some stuff that I never would have chosen for myself. That was like, for me, it looked big because it was flowy, but then the way it draped across my body and like kind of landed on my curves in a right way. It was, it was just so neat. I was like, oh, there's a whole different way of dressing this body that I didn't know about that actually makes me look and feel way better about myself, even though the clothes are like more voluminous. Yes. Because of the way they kind of like catch a, catch a hip. That's it. You know? Exactly. It was really cool. That's an awesome way of thinking of it because I'm kind of tired of shopping at the hoodie store. Yeah. <laughs> know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh-huh. Like, I feel like that is the dude section that I find myself in most. Sure. It's it's like, oh, you only need two pairs of jeans for the rest of your life and eight hoodies of varieting of, in a variety of colors. Best of luck to you, homie. And I'm ready for something new. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you're trying those fucking cool socks with your uh, cool sneaks. We're getting there. Yeah. We're getting somewhere getting in this style. cool sock it's, action happening. It's on my vision board. Nice. Where, like, yeah, I put, uh, who's the white dude who always wears gloves and he's well-respected? Um, I don't know. Carl Lagerfeld? <laughs> oh my God, yes. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you serious? Yes. Oh. <laughs> he's also like a crazy fucking lunatic. I think he died last year, actually. I can't believe you knew who I was talking about based on what has got to be one of the worst descriptions ever said out loud. <laughs> Man in gloves. Carl Lagerfeld? <laughs> Yo, if anyone needs a phone a friender for who wants to be a millionaire, call Mary Jane. I am good at trivia, I will say. Thank you. Yes. So what about Carl Lagerfeld now? Oh, well, he's just on my vision board because I want to break into new uh, fashion for myself. Find new things that I don't normally wear that I feel good in. I love that. Yeah. Also, what a hell of a detective. Yeah. Like if you were a, um, if you were a, uh, a witness drawer... A witness drawer. You know, the people who like draw what the witness sees. Oh, like a police sketch artist? Yeah, that's it. A witness <laughs> drawer. <laughs> Man, I hope I never have to play Pictionary with you. <laughs> I'm so bad at it. I'm so bad at it. Oh, man. <clears throat> but if we teamed up, I think we would win every game. Well, I think so because you remember, like, there have been times now because we're coming up on three years of doing this podcast together and spending a lot of time together doing all sorts of fun stuff. And there have been times when I have felt like I've read your mind. And I know that you've also experienced that. Yeah. We've talked about it on here, but it's worth repeating. We were walking and I didn't say anything and you answered me. <laughs> I answered a thought that you had you, in your head. Straight up. That I heard, but you did not say it out loud. I did not say it out loud. Yeah. And you responded and I just looked at you and I'm like, that's neat i really love when that happens i have to say it's one of my favorite things yeah well the man in the gloves is another fucking one unbelievable anyway wow yeah um fucking hey what else i don't know i mean do we have enough time to keep rapping or do you want to get to buds of the week and then this bananas great interview with noel I think we can, yeah, do Buds of the Week and introduce our fucking wild guest. Wait, 
What? Sorry, I just remembered we wanted to talk about breast cancer. Oh, that's right. There's a really amazing breast cancer awareness initiative that we wanted to shout out. Um, it's at checkyourself.fundraise.org. And uh, the tagline is, we made gummies to help save boobies. And it's an initiative that is... Um, in partnership with the uh, cannabis company Kiva, which is a California cannabis brand. And they're working with this um, New Year's wellness campaign for breast cancer awareness called Check Yourself. And they're donating $10,000 to the effort. And then they've also developed this line of gummies in conjunction with Airfield Supply Co. And they're delicious. We got some. Mm -hmm. And um, a dollar from each of those is also going to support the campaign. So if you're in California, the dispensaries are in San Jose and San Francisco and uh, Sweet Flower in Los Angeles and a couple of other places, but you can go and check online at checkyourself.fundraise.org for more information about the Kiva collab with Airfield. And it'll be in the show notes. And it'll be in the show notes. And it's great. It's like making gummies to help save boobies. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, fun. thank you for the slap bracelet. Yes. Thank you so much for the slap bracelet. Uh, took us way back. We had a lot of fun throwing it at each other the other night. And I uh, didn't land a single one on you. <laughs> Not one. Let's do a video where both of us hold our arms out and we try and slap bracelet the other one and just no cuts. You did it on my arm the first time. And I tried, I think, 30 times and didn't get you once. And this, you know, I mean, I throw. Have you ever seen me? Well, no, of course you haven't seen because I don't do it because I'm so fucking bad at it. Uh, I can't throw a Frisbee. Oh, no kidding. I cannot. What happens? Your whole arm come off? It goes behind me. <laughs> oh. I like truly can't let go of it at the right time. Mm -hmm. I just cannot figure it out. Like I'm not physically able to release the Frisbee from my hand, no matter how fucking hard I try to make it go straight. So if a, if a rogue Frisbee in the park landed next to you, you would jog it back over? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I would roll it. <laughs> like here you go i cannot it, it's it's crazy i tried to play ultimate frisbee once and uh i was sidelined they were like get out oh, no. get off the field you were terrible uh oh no i yeah. can play defense i get it's yeah i don't even know and it's crazy because i played water polo so you would think that i would know how to throw things to be fair frisbees are hard to throw i'm not great at it either i can do an underhand whip but if you're asking me to do an overhand throw it's tough I deep joel deep. hadley yeah one of the best ultimate frisbee players ever in college he was a superstar the dude can do tricks he makes dives he's a real og when it comes to the uf it's fucking gorgeous to watch when people are really good at frisbee and they snap it back and forth and it just looks so like the way it sails and they'll leap up and just snatch it out of the air it's glorious it's like ballet um and i wish i could do that but i cannot same wish i could too also uh, please don't cancel us, weed community, because I feel like Frisbee is a <laughs> mad important part of it. It's just not something we got the wheels for. Yeah, I can't, also can't hacky sack. Sorry, I'm just not physically coordinated in that way. Well, anybody comes for you, let's put them in the pool and see where they stack up. I I was uh, laughing the other night because I went down like a ton of bricks just walking down the street. I was trying to navigate Clubhouse on my phone while walking the dog, and it was dark, and my ankle hit a crack and I went down and I was like, I'm like a fat giraffe. Like <laughs> I, I go down so, so hard and so slowly. It's like everything bends and I just crumple. It's crazy. I'm so glad no one was there to see it. Yeah. I have a dinged up knee. 
It's, I mean. Like the ambulance that drove by just pulls over to laugh and point and then move on. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Hey, are you? A- yeah, you're on. Uh, yeah, uh, no, she's fine. It took her five minutes to go down. <laughs> you do fall slower than I anyone. fall so fucking slowly. And Archie was just like, what the fuck? Like he just stood there and looked at me. Oh, he was more embarrassed than he cared about. He was mortified. <laughs> Thank God no other dogs were there. <laughs> no one there to see it. standing in the community. Thank God. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> not good at uh, Frisbee or falling. Not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Who Who's first for Bo- Buds of the Week? Oh, I'll go first. Okay, great. I um, am going to shout out my friend Andrea as my Bud of the Week. Andrea is a friend from High Times Days. We had a lot of fun at many uh, cannabis cups and... Um, just like running around and being crazy and like smoking weed in parking lots until three in the morning. And uh, Andrea now has uh, a podcast that she's starting up and um, her handle is That's Andrea 420. And um, she's on Clubhouse at Saucebox. If you're on Clubhouse, you can look her up there. And her podcast is going to launch pretty soon. And I think it's going to be really fun. She's just having like cool conversations with a with a bud and um, she's in the cannabis industry. She's just a neat person, and she's got a long view of the cannabis industry. Love that. Yeah, she's been um, in it for a long time and, and has seen it evolve and is just really informed and funny as hell and salty, which is great. Ooh. She's a lot of fun. Yeah, if it's not sweet and salty, funny and salty. Yep. That's my favorite flavor. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, she's fantastic. So follow That's Andrea420 on IG, and she's my butt of the week. Speaking of long views, my butt of the week terrible intro but i do mean it my butt of the week is uh, mariah barnhart and she is in tampa florida she is the florida department of ag hemp advisory and consumer education she also does something called canna moms and i've been speaking and listening to her speak on clubhouse now for about two weeks she is so smart she has been in the game for so long she has created policy she is impactful um, also, I think she was a lawyer in college. Like, like it's somebody with a big brain and a big heart. And her story and her story with her child is heartbreaking, redemptive, and bananas. She speaks about it on Montel Williams' podcast. And so, I don't know. She's just really rad. Her heart's in the right place. And you can follow her on IG at Mariah Barnhart. The catch is Mariah spelled M-O-R-I-A-H. Awesome. Yeah. So we got some we got some funny salty buds of the week this week. Well, shit, we've got yeah. three. Our VIB is funny and salty as fuck. Our VIB, Noel Kassler. Oh my gosh! So Noel has been uh, just th- like the light on Twitter for me. He's been uh, taking like tweeting takedowns of Trump and his administration for the past couple of years, and he has amassed an amazing following on Twitter with his very fucking salty and funny and cheeky and eviscerating um tweets i would even say that it his following has been amassed but i would also say that his ability to get out real important information about this monstrous human being in a funny way is has made a big difference in the political climate and people voting like he's made a real impact yeah it's been it's been really interesting to follow him and just watch him put it all out there and put it on blast i mean it's his personal experience of working with the family and so just from like up close and personal and sharing that info and then also you know bringing 
his entire sort of like perspective to bear on the whole situation. It's, you know, he's been in the entertainment industry a long time and he tells us great stories about, you know, all of it. So it was a real fun hang. And um, I think, uh, you know, kind of like a really interesting view of like a time capsule of like, you know, look back at this last four years through a somewhat funny lens, but also really um, be aware of like the crazy impact that Trump had on the country. Should we get to it? Yep. All right. Without further ado, here is our interview with... Noel Kassler. We can start. Let's rock and roll. Let's rock and roll. I mean, Mary Jane, you're the one who... Um, you were like, that's ah, happening. So let's I, start with you. Yes. Okay. R- Hi, Noel Kassler. Thank you so much for coming on Weed and Grub. We are so happy to talk to you today. It's my pleasure. I couldn't wait. My management was so excited I was doing this show. They're big fans. And really? They, yeah. And they've had other clients do your show and they were like, oh my God, you got to do it. You know? <laughs> Excellent. So amazing. So um, I think we just wanted to start with how are you today? I'm doing good. I can't yeah. complain. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm on the East Coast. It's cold and gray, but you know, you guys, I assume, are in LA, obviously. So, yes, we are. I mean, I think we're asking because, you know, you're a comedian, uh, and I've, I've come to know you through your comedy and through your chronicling of the absolute dumpster fire that has been the Trump administration. So, here at the tail end of that happening, I think the how are you today is also like just how are you in general in the world? Like, how are you feeling about? life. Well, that's, uh, yeah, the real truth, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's stressful, you know, um, it's, it's rough. Um, cause everything I thought was going to happen happened, you know, short of like him starting a nuclear war. But this is what I was talking about the whole time. This is why I left my career in live television. And if your listeners don't know, I worked behind the scenes in television and the music industry for 25 years. And I did six seasons of Celebrity Apprentice, you know, so I saw his dysfunction up close. And it's funny, I was in 2015 when he was running, I was on tour with Crosby, Stills and Nash. I was a road manager for them. And Stephen Stills and I shared a tour bus and we left. We did a show in Chicago and he decided he wanted to take the bus to Atlantic City and like leave the rest of the band. We had a couple days off and they were going to fly into AC. So it's just like me and him on the bus and a bus driver. And we get off and we were staying at the uh, Caesars, you know, in, in Atlantic City. It's a casino, obviously. And we get off and Trump Plaza is right there in front of us. And it already had been shuttered. You know, there was like vagrant sleeping on the boardwalk. It looked like a bombed out building. You know, it looked like a war had come through there. And I turned to Stephen and I said, look, that's what this country is going to get if they elect this guy. That's how he leaves everything. And if you look at the images of Washington, D.C. this morning, it's shut down. You know, that's heartbreaking to me. I worked on Barack Obama's two inaugurations. You know, an inauguration can be a beautiful thing, you know, and a beautiful celebration of democracy. And it could be a hell of a party. I mean, his were legendary, you know? So the fact that we're denied that and DC is covered in tanks and National Guard, it's sad, to be honest. I know that's a long answer. I speak in paragraphs just to warn you guys, jump in anytime. It <laughs> makes our job easy because we just sit in the cut and let it go off. Um, b- before we get into some of these bananas tales um, about you, just you and the things you've experienced and seen. Uh, something that we were looking at your Twitter today and you were talking about the Mar-a-Lago omelet bar <laughs> and ketchup. And 
I, to add a little bit of context to our conversation, I was hoping you could talk about how aware you are of using entertainment to get a message across, to try and like blast these signals as loud as possible. Because we talk a lot on here about trying to be as funny as we can to get people to listen. And so is that something that you're really aware of and trying to do? Absolutely. I mean, that's my goal and why I'm in this business. And I thank you for asking that question, Mike. I mean, you couldn't ask, <laughs> you couldn't ask the question more right up my alley. And I'll give you the short answer. As you learned, I don't give very short answers. But, you know, I, my mentor was a guy named Jackson Brown, who's an L.A.-based, you know, musician and Crosby, Stills and Nash. Like, I come to this from a liberal, not liberal, they use that as a, bad, a progressive politics. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, like that sort of spirit, the, the, the part of the 60s that wanted to change things, you know, that made peace and love like a priority in life, that's deeply embedded in me, you know? And I also work with Pete Seeger and people like that. So I, I believe that art and humanities are very important and they can change people and they can change hearts and minds. And I think comedy in particular is well geared for this time. You know, I was a songwriter for a lot of my artistic thing. I made my living, you know, but, you know, I would write songs. And when this happened, and I still worked in live TV, but when Trump got elected, I was on a show that I used to do for HBO called The Night of Too Many Stars. And it was a big I wrote comedy. on it. Oh, well, there you go, bro. Exactly. Yeah. So I worked yeah. on all of those from the first one we did at the Beacon in 2008 to we did one at the Garden in like the fall of 2017, I guess, you know, and that's it was, the one I wrote on. Okay. So, you know, and you know what a hard job that was writing that show because the Absolutely. air, right. The air was thick. Louis CK thing. had just happened. We had to kick him off, not kick him off the show. You know what I mean? He, well, he was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he masturbated his way exactly. out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who I had worked with, you know, and uh, and I like, you know, I like Louie. I did the New Yorker Festival with him. But, you know, and, and, you know, the Weinstein thing had just happened and there was so much stuff happening. It was like, you weren't going to write a song about this. You know, uh, the things were happening so quick. By the time you wrote the song, recorded it and put it out there, there would have been three other dumpster fires that happened. And I, I saw how you could disarm people with laughter. If you remember, Chris Rock had a great exchange with somebody in the audience that night. And it sort of disarmed the crowd. And then uh, John Oliver, who I've worked with you know, in the past, came out and did a brilliant little set. And I sort of decided in that moment, I knew I hadn't been using, you know, I had a background in theater and comedic acting and stuff at UCB. But like, I knew I had things I could say and the ability to write them into a stand-up thing and I decided in that moment like I'm going into comedy because the things that I revealed in my stand-up I had told people I told Carl Bernstein you know I told Hillary's campaign actually when I was doing a gig with Louis CK I told Hillary's campaign called me up that day and I told them all about the snorting Adderall and the stuff that I'm sure we'll get into but you couldn't prove it and I knew that like I saw it with my eyes nobody else was willing to break their NDAs and quit their careers because it wasn't going to matter anyway to his base and you were only going to shoot yourself I sort of didn't care because as I said at the top of the show I knew it was going to end up with none of us working anyway which has sadly been the case the industry has been shut down for a year and I knew it was like an existential threat. And once he started locking up kids in cages and stuff, I was like, all gloves are off. And it, and it, it didn't come instantly. It took a while to make that stuff funny. Like my, and, and 
only people can judge if it's funny. It's been somewhat successful in that regard. But like in the beginning, like my, when I first started writing this stuff and going down to Gotham and doing it, people were like, what is he talking about? You know, <laughs> they were like scared, you know, and yeah. like, I kind of had a comedy coach was like, dude, you can't be angry up there. Like you have to make it funny. And as you know, you can only do that by practice and repetition. And when I, when I was able to sort of ground myself in it as more like storytelling and the jokes took shape, but made points, you know, and the joke I was most proud of. And I did my whole set for this one joke. And it was about immigrants, you know, when he was attacking the caravans and stuff, you know, and it was like, he's calling them the enemy, like a threat, you know, and I was basically pointing out, you know, I was like, how'd you get here today? You know, did you take the subway? No, I walked from Guatemala. It's like, you're hired. <laughs> You know, that's the guy you want to work. You know, those are people that are coming to better their lives and the lives of their families. That's what makes America great. And when I had that joke in my set, it came at a point in the set that people were already with me laughing and then they would clap. You know, they would clap at that recognition and be like, thank you. And I felt a healing in that common humanity. You know, that's where art can heal. You know, and even if there's a Trump person in the audience, they're going to feel a little bit of that, you know. Wow. So that's my take, you know. I, I love it because I think, what, especially what I've seen on Twitter, is it's very easy to just yell, I told you so, I told you so, and have a very, like, I don't know if smug is the right word, but there's a feeling of, like, see, but instead you've just, like, double, triple, and quadrupled down on the work and your messaging and being wildly funny instead of just kind of like crossing your arms and being like, I don't know what to tell you. I did everything I could. And I think that's a really inspiring way to get through not only these last four years, but to see what, where the future can go. And you've had, in my opinion, I think you've had a bit of a reverse alchemy because some of the funniest people I know are just so fucking angry that they can't be funny. Whereas you came from your anger and made it funny. And it was like a, a really interesting alchemical bit of work on your part, I think to like, take all, I mean, the insanity of the things, the stories that you can tell and, and to make those um, something where you've built up a following who are just like looking to you to see any light in the situation. It's really fucking cool. Well, that's awesome. You're both hired. <laughs> <laughs> I, now, I can't pay you as much as Robert Smigel might have, Mike, on that yeah. kid, but uh, I'll give you yeah. the free toothpaste, you know, about I'll that. Take, I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. Let's go. We're in. You have really navigated a career on Celebrity Apprentice where you became not only trusted, but you figured out, like, it just seems like celebrities, like, there's a trust there, and you really figured out how to navigate not only those parts of um, society, but also reality TV itself. And so could we start at your beginning and kind of work through how you built this, uh, uh, this go-to person in, in the reality TV space? Yeah, absolutely. And it was live television. You know, my main goal was like, I was the Apologies. top talent wrangler essentially in like all of live television. You know, I handled like the difficult talent so to speak, or the host on a show, somebody that the director and producer might be worried about. Basically, like you're a diplomat, you know, you work in live TV. If you're the director and the producer, you don't really want to talk to Madonna, you know, when she's doing the Super Bowl halftime show, which is a show I did for like 15 years. 
you want a go-between. You know, you want somebody for her management to yell at or tell you what's wrong, and then you want to go tell them. And you, you need a buffer because it's a contentious relationship by nature. And it's high pressure, and, you know, everybody's got their own goals, and it, you need a certain calmness and a certain demeanor to deal with talent. It somehow came to me instinctually. And my first gig, I was living down in Washington, D.C. I was studying acting, working like waiting tables in a restaurant. And this guy's wife, Tammy Rabb, who's a huge stage manager now in L.A., um, was like, I'm from L.A. You know, I know you're acting like I work on the Kennedy Center Honors. Maybe you want to come to rehearsal and be a PA or something, you know. And I was like, sure, you know, I don't know what that is, live television, but I'll go. It's an A-list kind of show. And I go there and I'm standing backstage and a stage manager comes up to me, like looks at us all, like we're getting a tour or something, you know, that's showing us around. And she goes, you, come here. And she hands me a French horn. And she goes, go stand on that riser out there. And I'm like, what? She's like, go stand on the riser and hold the horn and smile. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I walk out on this riser and she was enlisting me to be a stand-in. They were doing camera blocking, but it was a live rehearsal. So I'm just standing there and all of a sudden Billy Preston, you know, the keyboard player in the Beatles comes out on a riser. And then from this direction, Aretha Franklin comes out. Right. And they do this. And then the Washington Gospel Choir comes out and they do this run through of a song, which is amazing. Right. Don Misher, who's a legendary live television producer, he produces the Olympics and stuff, sees it and goes, hey, you know what, Aretha, that was good. But why don't you try it one more time? Essentially, like one more time with feeling. Right. And you could see Aretha getting pissed. And I'm like, oh, shit, he did not just say that to Aretha fucking Franklin. This is crazy, you know? And I see her walk, you know, places. Everybody goes to the top, right? Then she comes back out, and she had ratcheted up her game to the point that it was as if she was pulling, like, lightning bolts out of the heaven and just throwing them on people. I mean, boom, you're just feeling it. And at the end of that run through, everybody in there was crying. The cameramen, the grips, everybody was just incredibly moved. And I realized in that moment, like, this is a view into, into a world I would never get to see otherwise. And I knew no matter how good the performance was for television that night or the next night, it would never match what I just witnessed. You know, and I said, I want a front row seat at this. You know, I was addicted. And I ended up working with Aretha for many times for 15 years after. And she would always call me the goose pimple kid. Because I told her that story once at the U.S. Open. And she was like, you're the goose pimple kid. Cause, <laughs> and then I just got to do that over and over at the, you know, at the President Obama's inaugurations. And I did the Tony Awards for 20 years. The thing is, it's a small world. So once you're, you're sort of proven trustworthy, they keep hiring you. Because they can't risk somebody new or somebody who's going to pull out their camera and take a picture or whatever. You know? And then that led me to the gig on Celebrity Apprentice, which was basically a lark. You know, my friend was the talent coordinator. It was shot on a Sunday night at 8H at the SNL studios at Rock Center. That's where we shot the first season, you know, the first finale of Celebrity Apprentice. And she's like, hey, I need some A-listers. We're going to have like Cindy Lauper and some people you know. You want to come in. It's a decent paycheck, a couple days work. And then I just ended up doing it. And then that is its own story. But so that's how I got into the business and I became known for discretion. You know, I worked with Michael Jackson. I worked with Madonna. I worked on some, I mean, I've seen some stuff. People have now heard about what I saw with, you know, with Trump and his family, but I haven't spilled the beans on other things. And I didn't see illegal stuff, but I saw, 
stuff I could have sold easily to gossip column. You know, I saw Elton John fire like Tina Turner and, you know, I guess I just told that story. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know what? You want to hear that story? We were doing a show called GQ Man of the Year or something, something like that. It was at the Beacon Theater and she kept telling him how to play a certain note at the beginning of Proud Mary. And she kept stopping and being like, no, you're hitting that A chord wrong. And he's like, finally, after the fourth time, he's like, I think I know how to play the fucking song. And he storms off stage, right? And she's like, uh-oh, I guess I'm, they were going to do a whole summer tour together. She goes, I guess I just lost the summer tour, right? And they had to take her into his trailer and like smooth it over. And the only way he agreed to do the show with her again was if they switched the song and then they played the bitches back. Wow. Yeah, dude. And it was like, oh my God. And she got dropped from the tour. And I'm sorry (laughs) to Elton's band if you hear this because they're friends of mine. I've worked with him. But that's an example of the kind of stuff that I could have dropped a dime on. You know, I I worked with Whitney Houston, who I love when she was, you know, spinning out. And, you know, your job is to help. You know, I took pride in doing my work. It's like it's a show business. You know, it's not about me. You know, you know, you're just trying to make the best show you can and be professional. And as, as you both know, you're surrounded by other professionals, you know, and that becomes like being in an, an army or something. You know, it's an army with catering and, <laughs> and, and one hitters instead of guns. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. you're, so, you're still like you don't want to let your brothers in arms down, so to speak. Right. And, you, and while you were working on the show, you weren't talking about it. It was only really once Trump started running for political office that you decided that you needed to share those stories, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I would, I didn't talk about it and I'd seen the weird stuff on the beauty pageants in the nineties and everybody knew that, you know, I didn't know the Jeffrey Epstein accusations and all that stuff until they did deep dives on him. Cause I grew up in New York. He was like a, a huckster con man. You know, he was a joke. We would see him at the VMAs. I'd see him at the rock and roll hall of fame, actually with Jelaine Maxwell and stuff, but you didn't know, the backstory, and it's also being who he was was not unique <laughs> in, in, in some respects. Like, he's a, his own monster, but you both know, like, Hollywood was full of, like, horribly behaving men of power. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it was, that was the gig, you know? So there was nobody to tell even before he's president, because people will give me that criticism. They're like, why don't you say something? I'm like, what am I going to say? Hey, guys. The dude who owns the pageant that's airing on Universal NBC, like, is being a jerk to the girls, you know? Surra- right. Surrounded by cops that he's paying. Like, nobody cares, you know? Right. Well, and, you know, when the, the tour bus video came out, it still did nothing. He was on tape incriminating himself about grabbing women by the pussy, and that didn't even make a dent. So why the fuck would you have stories to, you know, open exactly. and, and, and danger? Absolutely. And when that came out was when I talked to Hillary's campaign because then it was ratcheting up. It was October and they they put me in touch with People magazine. I gave them the whole story. They had one of their writers got assaulted at Mar-a-Lago. They were going to write a cover story on it. When it came time to be published, it ended up being a cover story on Nancy O'Dell's divorce. Right. So somebody caught and killed that thing. You know, when I spoke with Hillary's campaign, they seemed to be very confident that he would, that she was going to win anyway, because all the poll numbers said so. So they were kind of like, yeah, we've heard this stuff. We're just looking for another source that it's true. I confirmed it. Then the Access Hollywood, as you just mentioned, Mary Jane, came out, and everyone was like, well, he's done. 
You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter anyway. He'll never survive this politically. And as we all know, James Comey did his little trick. And then, you know, 70,000 votes later, we have what we have now, you know, a, a broken country, you know? Yeah. To, to Do you mind sharing some of these stories? I, I, I feel like you've shared them um, many times, and I wanted to ask you about some of them, but also if you have talked about them and you want to dig into right now in the future, happy to do that as well. Yeah, I'm, because... I'm happy to. Happy. Okay. Anything, ask me anything you want. That was the deal. You know, that's what I said in my stand-up. Like, yeah, I signed an NDA, but I didn't know you were going to become president and lock kids up in cages. Now it's no way, dumbass. I'm telling them everything I know. You know? Yeah. Everything. So ask me anything. Well, because hearing about how everyone trusted you um, in terms of Hollywood and the industry and you being the go-to person because you're trusted to have discretion, and now you deciding to share these stories, which makes you, quite honestly, even more trusted with just America at large, I was wondering if if you could share about the beauty pageant in particular, because that one really stuck out for me, talking about grab them by the pussy as, as such a... Um, it's like the trailer to the horror movie right. in a way. And an open secret, really. I yeah. Mean, I think that, you know, like Abs- witnessed by many people, uh, tolerated by many people, swept under the rug by many people. A hundred percent. consequences, right, yeah. The first time I heard about the a credible accusation of sexual assault was from a television director, you know, was from a well-known television director who'd taken paychecks from Trump. You know, he had an incident in Trinidad that was like a, a, an, a, what do you call a poorly kept secret? You know, it was like a trade secret where they basically had to flow him, fly him off the island in 99 in the middle of the Jesus. night because he attacked a contestant. And, and that was a known story. You know, that was a story that second ADs and the truck and cameramen and stuff knew about. The stuff I, I witnessed was on the pageants in the late 90s, the Miss USA Miss Teen USA, it's the same organization, Miss Universe, and they had two pageants. One was like 15-year-old girls, you know, and one was like 18-year-old girls. Mm-hmm. Like, and you can imagine which one he was more interested in, you know? And he, <laughs> yeah. he had his daughter host Miss Teen USA, and I saw her give him a lap dance. And he sat there and glared at the crowd. Like, not the crowd, like the crew. And if mm-hmm. you look at those pictures of him... If you see all these kind of weird pictures with him and her at a young age, he's always looking like at the people in the room like, what? Stop me. You know, because he views her as his possession. And, and you can see like he grabs her hand, her hand goes white because he clenches so hard. So we saw that weird behavior. Then you saw what he did with the girls. And this is what I witnessed where he'd line them up on stage. And you brought this up. You guys will understand this. I make this point all the time, and I don't think people really get it. The first time I saw that happen was like the first, you know, first like Miss Teen Universe or Miss Universe I'd done, right? And he lines up all the people and he inspects them, and it cost an hour of union time because they weren't expecting it. They thought they were going to do camera blocking, right? So you have all the DGA cameramen standing around and all the audio techs, and the truck is full of the director. And then this guy comes up, comes out and holds up production for an hour while he goes up and down and sticks his finger in their teeth. That wasn't a joke. He would check their teeth, seeing who had teeth like Ivanka. He had a little notepad at one point. He would make little notes. He'd look at their breasts, look at their ass, like cattle call. 
You know, like he was buying horses at a state fair or something. You know, like Phew. crazy stuff, right? And cameramen are sitting around like disgusted. They went home and told their wives. You know, these became like legendary stories. So you think, you know what? Next year, he's not going to get away with this. You know, when I witnessed that, I'm like, next year, this guy's off the pageant. Or like, they won't let him anywhere near those girls. Like, this can't continue. You know what happened next year when I showed up for the gig? It was written into the schedule an hour stop down, Trump inspects contestants, no crew call. So what wow. they did was save the union wages by like, look, hey, electricians, cameramen, just come in at 11. We don't need you till 11. So they didn't lose money. And when I saw that, it was my first lesson in if there's money to be made from this guy, people will condone it, you know? And at the Celebrity Apprentice, Apprentice series, it was the same way. You think Jeff Zucker didn't know what Trump was doing? You know, you don't think he was calling the N-word to the contestants. We all knew it. He said it to Holly Robinson Pete. They wanted him to pick her, and he goes, they want me to pick the N-word. You know, and I can get into that story if you want. But they were Please. all out there. Well, that was like 2010, right? And ironically, the year earlier, the June before I had done the Tony Awards with Brett Michaels, Poison was performing at the Tony Awards, as odd as that sounds. It sounds <laughs> you know? great. I would be so down. <laughs> it's awesome. it was, right, at Radio City, you know, it was like, uh, it was the era of the jukebox musical, you know, so there was probably some hair metal musical or something. I think yep. there, I can't remember the name, there actually was. And uh, That was when like, Moving Out was on Broadway. With exactly. Tharp and, yeah. Exactly. It was like anybody who even had half of a hit song was getting their own musical, you know. So Poison performs and Brett Michaels doesn't come to rehearsal. Right. So he doesn't come and learn the blocking. And the Tony Awards is the most fast moving show of any show there is. You know, they do a, a dress rehearsal in the morning. The thing is live at night. There's like a thousand cast members like it's insanely tough from a logistical standpoint. The dude doesn't come to rehearsal. His band does. So they learn the blocking. Right. So at the end of your performance, move upstage. You know, get out of the way because the scrim's coming down, right? So we do the rehearsal, or the performance that night. I'm in their handler. I'm standing stage right, right? They, they finish, like, performing, and I see Brett Michaels starting to wave and walk downstage towards the audience because he's into, like, all the applause. He's like, wow, you know, Radio City's intoxicating, a lot of 6,000 people. You know, he probably hadn't had that many people clap at him in 25 years. So he's like... <laughs> Wow, they're clapping. And he walks downstage. And me and the union stagehands are like, he's going to get killed. He's going to get decapitated. And we see this scrim come down, like a steel scrim, you know, with a steel bar at the end of it. And it hits him right on the head, knocks him out. He's laying there on the stage. You can look all this up, you know. Oh, they man. take him out on a stretcher. He gets a brain aneurysm, like he's in the oh. hospital for two weeks, you know. Oh, my God. We apologize to CeCe DeVille. And he goes, don't worry about it. I've hit him harder than that. <laughs> which is a funny line, but it's a disaster, right? And, and it ends yeah. up, so I know it's a long story, but it ends up giving him health complications that continue. He's also a oh. diabetic. So now he's a diabetic with an aneurysm, right? Who didn't listen to directions and come to rehearsal. So the following year, he's on Celebrity Apprentice, you know, and Trump likes him. You know, he's, he wears a bandana. He looks like the kind of guy Trump would like, you know, and Trump was never involved in like who was going to be the winner. You know, it was just producers told him. He'd come in at the last minute and they'd be like, you're picking this person. He wasn't involved in that show in the way they made it look like he was involved because he's so incapacitated all the time. He barely shows up. You know, you're lucky to get an hour of work out of the guy. So they, we show up for the finale and they're like, 
you know, Holly Robinson Pete, this beautiful African-American woman who's won every contest we threw her way. She's eloquent. She's smart. Like, if you were in corporate America, which was ostensibly the point of the show, right? You were picking a corporate officer. Guys trip over themselves to hire somebody like Holly Robinson Pete. You know what I mean? Like she's your dream come true if you're looking to hire somebody at your company and you know anything about the world and how it works, right? So they're like, it's down to these two people, Donald. You know, it's Holly Robinson Pete who's won everything or Brett who hadn't been there in a month because he was hospitalized, you know? Oh my and, God. And for the finale, we had to have EMTs off, like off stage in case he went into cardiac arrest because his brain injury was so terrible. So we literally have EMTs, right? So who does Trump choose? No, I'm not choosing Holly Robinson Pete. And he turns to his guy and goes, they want me to choose the N-word. And Holly hears this. She didn't know what they were saying at the time. I've since told her she's tweeted about it, but he said it out loud. I'm not the only one who heard it. There's live mics on everybody. There's tons of hours of this stuff. You know those cameras they were using. They have digital chips in them that record everything. Even when they're off, they're recording, right? So he says this, and it really tells you who he is. You know, I set up that story because, like, who are you going to choose? You know, this, the beautiful, smart, you know, black woman who won everything, you know, or the dude in the bandana who didn't listen to instructions, you know, a year ago and got a brain aneurysm. <laughs> is that who you're choosing at your corporation? You know, but for Trump, it was no question. It was like, I'm choosing the white guy, you know? Yeah. Wow. Fucking hell. That just... Uh... It, it's infuriating and I wish it were laughable. I mean, it's, but it's just not, I mean, here we are after having someone like that in charge for four years and he's burned it all to the fucking ground. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to actually, um, this is, uh, today when we release this is, uh, January 20th. So it's the first day of the new administration. And I, I, you know, I want to hear about your, your, what, what you think is going to happen and what the next chapter is going to look like. But, um, I would love to ask you about Celebrity Apprentice, specifically the hypocrisy of uh, his drug addiction and uh, specifically how he uses drugs himself and then is incredibly unconscionably terrible to anyone that he deems to have any kind of substance problem, like his own brother who died of alcohol. Uh, exactly. You know, abuse, Two brothers. You know. Two brothers yeah. died of alcoholism. Right. The brother this right. summer died of alcoholism, too. He was the town drunk up in, in up up not far from where I am in New York State. He was he owned a restaurant and he would go in there falling down drunk every night. And Trump didn't talk to him for thirty years. And he died of alcoholism in the hospital in Mount Sinai, you know? Mm. And Trump used that as a photo op this summer. Remember he had his casket come to the White House? You know, it was like he hadn't talked to the guy. They don't get any help. Don Jr. is clearly an active addict right now. He was dry when I knew him, he was a dry drunk. So was Ivanka. Like the gene of alcoholism runs through that family, the addictive gene, stronger than I've seen. And it runs through my family. And I don't drink anymore myself, you know? Mm -hmm. But, and I always want to make this point. I'm glad you brought it up because, like, there's no shame in using substances. You know, my telling that story wasn't like, ooh, he's using drugs. If you could do your job, you know, and snort whatever you want and go out and do the gig, more power to you. You know, I toured with Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, like I worked with the Rolling Stones. Like I'm not <laughs> against 70 year old men using drugs if they can do the gig, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you understand what addiction really is, you know, the stuff underneath it, the self-centeredness, the fear, the resentment, 
when left untreated, that's who you see in Donald Trump. And that's the main reason I spoke out. It wasn't like, ooh, he snorts Adderall. Everybody in recovery, like if you talk to anybody at an AA meeting these days or something, they're all snorting Adderall. Like that's what all these kids are doing in college. It keeps you up. I would have been snorting it too if they had it when I was that age, you know? So it wasn't like, ooh, he's doing this substance. Though there's a lot to be said for these rich guys who get prescriptions. And his doctor who supplied him just died yesterday, Harold Bornstein. That was the doctor feel good on the Upper East Side who gave him his drugs. And nobody knows how he died, but that's the guy that Trump, as soon as he got elected, sent his bodyguards, Keith Schiller and another guy, into his office and they stole all the medical records. Because that's the guy who was writing Trump's scripts for the last you know, 20 years and he didn't want it to come out. That's why you've never seen his medical records. And that's why he's sniffing all the time and he, 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 he's dyslexic. He can't read. So he snorts it to feel more in control of his brain, you know, mm-hmm. which is very addictive. You know, you, but you come to rely on a subject or a, a substance rather to get, to mm-hmm. get through your life. And then, then you become powerless over this thing. So to, but to your point, like there's never probably been a better drug in this comp- in this country than cannabis. You know, cannabis is a miracle cure, should be legal everywhere. You know, we just legalized it, or our our governor here in New York just promised to legalize it, you know? So the fact that like the conservative party and the GOP have basically used it as an excuse to lock up people of color, you know, for the last 60, 70 years is is abhorrent, you know? Mm -hmm. And Trump fell in line with that. You know, Trump sold cocaine out of Trump Tower. You know, if you were a finance bro in the 80s and 90s, you went to Trump Tower to score because you weren't going to get busted because he had NYPD cops on the payroll. So you didn't want to go uptown where you might get picked up on the street trying to score. It was like a place for white people to get it, essentially, because there's two kind of rules. You know, those same people that write the laws are doing cocaine in their country clubs. You know, their, their wives popping Xanax all day. Drugs are drugs, <laughs> you, you know, like and. and and treatment is treatment. There's no shame in it if you get a problem, but not admitting you have a problem and then locking up other people who have a problem, you know? And everybody in a prison is somebody who's been abused. You know, they've had horrific stories for the most part. They've had untreated addictions. I'm not excusing them for their crimes, but we'd do a lot better as a society if we started offering some therapy to these people, you know, yoga, you know, if we started giving <laughs> yes. giving weed to everybody who's hooked on fucking fentanyl right now and heroin and, you know, and I've gone down the road with all this stuff, you know, I'm speaking from experience. I, I didn't do Adderall, but I've abused every other substance you can, you know, and uh, wow, that's a lot. Did well, I make I, my point? I don't know if yes. I made my point. Yeah. It, the Absolutely. hypocrisy, you know? The hypocrisy. And I just wanted to know if it was like, it was something that you actually saw happening on Celebrity yeah. Apprentice. Like not yeah. just a, something that people talked about, but you actually no, no, no. saw. He snorted it. These yeah. He walked yeah. off, went to the dressing room at 8H was the first time I saw it. I didn't see him bend over and snort it. You know, I stood right outside the room, saw him come out, saw all the white powder, saw it fly out of his nose. Like people have pointed out on press conferences as he's president. I might add, if you look on Twitter, there's there's been chunks flying out of his nose, just like we saw in Celebrity Apprentice. It was no secret, you know, and then I had to confirm, like, what's he snorting? That's not blow. And he's like, no, it's somebody I almost gave up the sex of the person. But like, no, it's crushed Adderall. And then I knew somebody who knew him intimately on the Upper East Side, uh, like a sex worker that he frequented. It was like, yeah, he snorts Adderall. He did coke and meth and stuff, too. Adderall Mm -hmm. is his maintenance high. That's what he Mm -hmm. does to feel like 
to basically to read. He couldn't read three-syllable words, and he gets really freaked out. And if you see him as president, he's always reading with his finger and just phonetically sounding it out. And they write it on his teleprompter, same way we did at The Apprentice. It would be like Minneapolis. Like that's how he, when he says Minneapolis, you know, our industry is like in dust tree. So that's mm-hmm. why he has those weird pronunciations because he's reading it phonetically. And there's no shame in being dyslexic. They just never treated him for it. You know, his father was like, you're a loser, you're dumb. That's why they hid all of his medical records. You know, I suspect he got made fun of in public school, you know, or in elementary school. And that's why they sent him to military school, you know, because he, he would lash out at people who made fun of him for that. So, yes, I saw it to answer your question. And it was no secret. So what is the what does the family look like now? Because quite frankly, as a as a family unit, it I feel so disconnected to understanding who they are and what they're about, because all I know is who I follow on Twitter without knowing how they actually are besides an Instagram story or something like that. So is it is it just all the way down the line? This is what we're working with and seeing for the future of the Republican Party. I tell people this. Don Jr., like the Dalai Lama would want to punch him in the face. Like you just look at him and you're like, I don't know, man. I just want to punch him. I'm not advocating for that. He just has that kind of face. Like as (laughs) soon as you meet him, he walks with his chest pumped out. He's 10 times worse than his father. He's like his father on steroids and obnoxious. And we will be stuck with him to a certain extent politically unless they bring charges because he speaks the language. You know, he Mm -hmm. hangs out in Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops and stuff. You know, that's why Mm -hmm. he was opening up the MAGA rallies. He really knows how to gin those, those crowds up even more than his father in a way. Ivanka and Jared would run the show behind the scenes. That's the power play and dynamic I saw. And I tell people this. Trump wants, this is what Trump wants. Trump wants music to play when he walks in the room. He wants to get high and he wants to hit on women, you know, meaning he wants what can feed his ego in that moment. He doesn't have a long game. You know, he's a narcissist. He needs to feel good right now because he's got a big hole inside of him that he's trying to feel, fill with an image of power. You know, I'm powerful. Women want me. That's why all the sexual stuff is power trips. It's assaults and rapes. And it's telling the other guy how much pussy he gets. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you Mm -hmm. heard in the Billy Bush trait. Guys that are real, really love women don't speak that way. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're just like, I don't need to prove anything to you. And I'm a gentleman. I'll keep my mouth shut, you know. But he's, it's more like trying to impress someone else, you know. And uh, so... So, but, but Jared and Ivanka play the long game and they manipulate him, you know, and I saw that up close, like that breathy voice that Ivanka has that drives everybody crazy. Vonky, as I call her, that's a put on. That's not how she really sounds. Her real voice is like an octave lower. She curses all the time. Like she sounds like she's from Queens, you know, like a, <laughs> a like a tr- truck driver. You know what I mean? Like and then she gets around him and she's like, hello, father, you know, in this breathy, sibilant s cooing sound. There's actually a clip. Um, on Conan O'Brien, she was a guest in the 90s and she spoke in a regular voice. So if your listeners want to do some research, you can hear uh-huh. what I'm talking about. But so they're scary. You know, Jared and Ivanka have had access to secrets and international negotiations that they had no business being involved in. And they've been involved in them for the last four years. So just in like the, the Middle East, for example, the amount of deals that Kushner has put together and the amount of things that we don't know about 
you know, are going to be terrifying. And he's now buying up debt. He's now buying all of these failed industries that their lack of a response to the pandemic have crippled all these, you know, like apartment buildings are now like worth a tenth of what they were. So he's buying up distressed assets, they call it. It's like being a vulture in Wall Street terms. So that they're dangerous. Um, Eric was an idiot. We called him Twizzlers because he would take all the red Twizzlers from the craft service table. And that's the other thing. <laughs> like they're petty, you know? They're petty. Yeah, that's so petty. They're petty as yeah. fuck. They would double dip on per diem. They'd be like, I didn't get my per diem. And the production coordinator is like, he got his per diem, but they'd give it to him anyway. You know, they were scamming 100, 200 bucks here because he wasn't really a billionaire. If you're really a billionaire, like if, if my dad's a billionaire, I'm an equestrian right now. You know what I mean? I'm doing mm-hmm. dressage, bro. I ain't anywhere. <laughs> I ain't anywhere near your fucking game show. You know, I'm on yeah. my I'm on my catamaran. You know, all summer <laughs> in Nantucket. Like, wow. but these, these guys are showing up to get a SAG fucking wage. Sorry to curse. You know, to get a no, SAG please. wage on a game show. You know, so that was another insight. It was like these guys are scammers. He's not a billionaire. You know, they're yeah. trying to get every dime they can get out of a. A production company. Because truth be told, he was broke right before The Apprentice. He had blown the $700 million he had inherited from his father, which he scammed his father and siblings out of him, and made them sell off his empire for a one-time payment, which was like the dumbest financial move ever. If you own a bunch of apartment buildings in New York City in the suburbs, hold on to that. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a, an asset that's only going to increase and it's going to pay you dividends every year. He sells it to pay off the debt he had incurred in casinos. So he's a huckster, you know, and that was, that was apparent. But we're going to live with them for a long time, sadly. January 20th is what you asked about. Yes, it's a new dawn. We can finally deal with what we have to deal with. You guys are in, you know, California and my heart goes out to you. I know what it's like to listen to ambulances all day. You know, we went through that in New York in the spring. It's horrifying. And when that happened, I said, we're not getting through this until we get rid of this guy. You know, he's essentially like your house is on fire and he's standing in the driveway, like blocking the fire trucks because he breaks things. That's what he does. You know, he, he knows how to destroy things and leave them bankrupt. And that's why the Russians wanted him to be president in the first place. You know, they wanted to So you to do we- believe that? I, 100%. I was going to ask you about that. I, I know it to be true. It's not even okay. a hunch. Because when I worked for them, Felix Sater was an employee of the Trump organization. If you know who Felix Sater is, he was like a Russian mobster, you know, who worked on behalf of the Russian mob and the Trump organization. And we would have after parties. Like in 2010, for example, we did an after party at Trump Tower, or Trump Soho, which wasn't in Soho, by the way. You know, it was like, Bono, unreal. Below, yeah, it was below Canal Street, you know, so it was and not like the nice part of Tribeca, you know, but like, so it wasn't even in Soho, if you know anything about New York, but that's typical Trump, right? But we would have these after parties, you know, and I think Gene Simmons was there or whatever. And I remember Felix Sater, first of all, the whole invited audience would be like these Russian mobster guys getting out of SUVs with women in like fur coats in like May. You know, like in May in New York and you're wearing a fur coat. They're just showing off their bling, you know, and they'd have these parties and the entire after party would be all these Russians. And Felix Sater would work the room with Jared and Ivanka and make introductions. You know, this is Sergey, blah, blah, blah. It was all a scam to make money. You know, everything is about how does the Trump org make more money? And that's what he used the presidency for. But yes, he'd been laundering money for the Russian mob 
well before The Apprentice. I mean, that's who he's selling condos to in Trump Tower. What is the bright light for you that you really feel is going to pull us all through this? Or is there one? Well, it'll be arts and humanity. It'll be doing things like you guys are doing. You know, it'll be like funny people talking about real issues, you know, in a funny way that somebody might, you know, download on their phone and listen to and listen to a guy like me and say, you know what, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's great because I, I feel like, you know, you've put so many people on notice and then looking to the future, we've got people like Claudia Conway coming up who, you know, truth telling through comedy with, you know, a, a huge audience of young people who will hopefully join her in questioning what the fuck has been going on you know it's it's just great because i think that's that's a big hope for me is like the TikTok generation of kids who are like making viral videos about like soup cans and you know that kind of stuff through you know great comedy and and really questioning this four years of hell that's an excellent point mary jane and kudos to claudia and all those kids because they're not going to take it you know we saw what they did to trump's big rally in tulsa this summer you know, yeah. where all the K-pop guys bought up all the tickets and nobody That's showed right. up. And, and I That's love right. this next generation. You know, to answer your question more, more fully, they give me hope. Things that were like homophobia and all this stupid shit that my generation dealt with when I was in high school in the 80s is unacceptable now to this new generation of kids. You know, these kids are woke, you know, and comedy has to be about a subject that's funny, not somebody's looks or somebody's sexuality or misogyny. So they give me hope. Well, I think um, before we do some plugs, I would just like to ask if you would come back once we get through a bit of this Biden administration, because one of the things I've realized in talking with you for this brief time is how you have a full picture of how things work and the dots that you're able to connect in ways that I don't think um, a lot of the American public has um, the ability, not the ability, um, they haven't seen and had access to the things you've had access with to connect these really important dots to show how capitalism really works, how the patriarchy really works, how government is working these days. So it would be really great to kind of see what Biden does and then speak with you again to see what other dots are out there. You know, I would love to. It would be my honor. And it's been an honor to be here today. And, and thank you. That's very kind to say. I, I, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill. I was a bike messenger there when I was 18 to 1991. So 89 to 91, I was an in-house bike messenger. And that was DC of like, David Grohl was in a band called Scream, you know, Fugazi and all these bad brains, all these politically woke bands. So I came out of that scene, which was kind of anti-consumerism to some extent. And I grew up with, my mom had me at 19. So I had a single mom. I grew up in PG County, Maryland, like basically in a black neighborhood, you know, this little white kid. And all my friends were named, or, you know, it was black, Palestinian, South American, you know, it was a mixed thing. And that was the best blessing in the world for me because you know, I saw that we were all into this together and I had this multicultural kind of friends at a young age. And then I saw Reagan get elected and we were poor. You know, we would eat free lunch in schools and free breakfast. And I saw him come in and take that away. You know, so I saw my friends go hungry, you know, and then I saw him start the war on drugs and I ran Contra and I saw him flood these neighborhoods with cocaine. And all of a sudden these kids that were my friends were now viewed as gangsters selling rock and crack. You know, and instead they were just flooding guns and, you know, and locking them up because it became an industry. I was plucked out of that and moved up to Westchester County to live with my grandparents because my mom went to jail for robbing a bank. Long story. 
But uh, <laughs> I'll tell that another time. She actually okay. robbed like eight banks. But, you know, so I, I ended up, you know, seeing the worst of what can happen to people who were left without any social nets. And she deserved to go. She was in addiction and stuff. But, you know, I saw like what it's like to grow up on the wrong side of the tracks when the, the odds are stacked against you. And then I moved to these leafy white suburbs where kids play lacrosse, you know, and go skiing all winter and stuff. And I saw how resentful and ignorant many of those kids were. You know, I saw how this racism was endemic. And I was like, you guys don't even get it. <laughs> like, you don't even understand how lucky you are. Nobody's taken your dad's job. Nobody's coming here to take anything from you. You got it made. You know, this country is geared towards people like you. But instead, they fomented that ignorance and that resentment and that jingoism, you know, and ethnocentricity into what we saw now that Trump exploited. So I seen it from afar and then I was in the middle of it. And I, as again, I thank my mentors. Jackson Brown would write about Iran Contra, you know, that's how I met him. I snuck into his dressing room at Radio City because I'd written a paper on American imperialism in Central America. Because I was trying to like educate my classmates, like this is what it really means. You know, this is what Ollie North is really doing. Like they're selling drugs in South Central so they can buy guns to give to the Contras. You know, this is part one of a series, right? Okay. Like the the conversation opens with these crazy stories about this fucked up guy who's been, you know, not running things for the last fucking or running shit into the ground. But this is part one of a series with you about like what is America? Yeah, to me. happy to do it. That's the theme you know? of my life. Thank you. Yeah, L love so. to come back and do it because that's my theme because we all got to live here. And, and yeah. the, the common threads, if you ever read like Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, it's the same stuff. It's the same themes over and over. The guys who are really making the money don't want you finding that out. They want you right. to resent the other. They want the poor and middle class whites to resent the immigrants and the blacks because you don't want the attention turning back on them who's really exploiting them. And that's how mm -hmm. you get your Mitch McConnell's, you know, his. His state's 43rd in education. It's like one of the poorest states in the nation, and they keep electing him over and over. And he's worth 20 yeah. million bucks. He's not looking out for them. He's looking out for himself. But he's using racism and the American flag to sort of exploit these people, you know? Yeah. And also, I mean, to be fair, Zinn wasn't very funny. So let's <laughs> yeah. just, you know. Not known for laughs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good joke. That's funny. <laughs> so this is better. Um, well, so excited to have you back. Thank you so much for hanging with us today. This conversation is dropping on January 20th, which is the inauguration day for the new administration. So here's to a, a brighter future while we hopefully all solve problems together. Yeah. And um, thank you for being on Weed and Grub. Where can everyone follow you and find you? Uh, on Twitter, it's Noel Castler Comedy, at Castler Noel. Instagram, it's Noel Castler. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you so much. And if you would like to check us out, we are at Weed and Grub on Instagram. WG at Weed and Grub is our email. Uh, give us five stars. Tell a bud about us, especially, especially today with this chat with Noel. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Namaste. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.